Welcome to Telling the Tooth, the official mental dental podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gross, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Laura Jaycox. Hello, happy to be here. Dr. Jaycox is a great friend and colleague of mine. She's an orthodontist who practices at Sievert Smiles in Chapel Hill and Pittsburgh, North Carolina. She's also an orthodontic research faculty at the University of North Carolina Adams School of Dentistry, and she's currently researching dentofacial disharmonies and their effect on speech. She's a native Chicagoan with the accent to prove it, and it's, it's really great to have you here, Laura. Thank you so much, Ryan. I'm so excited to be part of this um, and really interested in interviewing all of the people we have lined up for this season. Um, I also wanted to introduce you, Dr. Ryan Gross. He's an orthodontic resident at the University of North Carolina Adams School of Dentistry, who I have loved working with. Um, he applies his passion for teaching uh, via his, his channel, Mental Dental, where he has over 60,000 followers. Talk about an influencer. Uh, where he helps students and dentists gain a deeper understanding of various dental topics. Um, he's going to be a wonderful host, and I'm excited to work with him going forward. How, how are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well. Uh, the virus has obviously changed a lot of things, but I really tried to you know, focus on the silver lining and remain positive that things will get better. But in the meantime, I have been wearing a lot of masks, as I'm sure you are as well. <laughs> Yes, yes. I, I, I think I've never worn as much PPE in my life as I have now. Um, I, I've gotten used to just having to, to really project and practically yell through my mask to make sure my patients and our staff can hear me. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a good thing to do to keep everybody safe, and, and I'm happy to do it. I just, I hope that there's a vaccine or a treatment or something that comes sooner rather than later so life can return to some, some more normalcy. Definitely. Well, I know we're both really excited about this podcast. We've wanted to do this yeah. for a long time. And one of the silver linings is that we have the time to sit down and record some really great episodes. So speaking of which, we have a huge list of world-renowned dentists and specialists who will have the privilege of interviewing, and they'll get to share their knowledge on topics like clinical techniques, practice management, and the newest discoveries in dentistry. Yeah, and we're excited to try to bring things that are being done in academic centers and are being written about in journals and present it in a way that's clinically relevant and that you can bring to your practices so that it's not just some, some esoteric article um, buried in AJODO, but something that um, you can really bring into your office to help build your practice, build good patient relationships, um, and, and help our patients achieve better smiles. I couldn't agree more. So with that being said... I hope you all enjoy the interview. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. John Christensen. Dr. Christensen is a dual-trained, board-certified pediatric dentist and orthodontist. He currently practices at Durham Pediatric Dentistry and Orthodontics in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Christensen is an adjunct clinical professor at the University of North Carolina and has prepared test questions for both the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry's oral examinations and for the National Board Dental Examination. He has published multiple research articles and has co-authored one of the leading pediatric dental textbooks titled Pediatric Dentistry, Infancy Through Adolescence. 
His list of accomplishments goes far beyond this, but needless to say, it's an absolute honor to have you here. So thank you so much for taking the time and being with us today. Well, thank you very much. So we would love to talk to you about auto transplantation. So could you give us an overview about what auto transplantation is all about and maybe how you got interested in it? I sure can, Ryan. Auto transplantation, just by definition, is a procedure where a tooth from one part of the mouth is moved to another to replace either a missing or a compromised tooth. It's interesting in North Carolina, or North America, autotransplantation has been uh, largely ignored or overlooked. Uh, you'll read in the literature some case reports here and there, but basically in the early 80s when I was training, uh, that was the advent of prosthetic replacement with implants. And we thought here in North America that implants would be the, the panacea for all our problems with missing teeth. Unfortunately, that hasn't turned out to be quite the truth. For whatever reason, in Scandinavia, in Europe, Korea, they went a bit of a different way and started transplanting teeth in these cases. And the nice thing about that is you are taking a, it's a natural tooth solution. You don't have to worry about uh, all the problems that are attendant with, with implants and prosthetic replacement. How did I come to this? I have my world where I live being pedo and ortho, I deal with a lot of trauma and hence a lot of missing and compromised teeth. And I just was never really happy with the outcomes that I was getting in cases where teeth were missing. Um, and so I started reading about it and I finally decided I'm gonna learn more about this. Went over to Europe to their second symposium on autotransplantation of teeth. I missed the first and happened to run into some people that are quite influential over there. We became friends and the rest is history. I've, we've started bringing people to UNC to teach our uh, people from surgery to endodontics to orthodontics to restorative dentist, how this might go. So that's, that's my brief history of how I came to autotransplantation. Oh, that's great. Um, what do you view as the kind of main pros and cons of it, especially relative to other possible procedures um, like corticotomies or implants? Well, um, it has many advantages um, that the prosthetic can't do. The, I think the biggest is that it can be done in the mixed dentition uh, versus with implants, we have to wait till the patient is essentially done growing. In females, obviously, that may be a little bit earlier. In males, that can be you know, up to 25 years of age. So that's a, a definite advantage in that we can start and finish while the child is relatively 
young. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. And then, you know, dealing with a prosthetic replacement, you always have the problems of the prosthetic replacement. The, it, it does not erupt. It cannot change its vertical position. It cannot change its uh, angular position as natural teeth do as the face ages and the patient ages. The other yeah. big advantage of a transplanted tooth is you can move it with an orthodontic appliance. You can put it in place and then move the tooth around. And in doing so with an intact PDL, you can fill in deficient bone, deficient soft tissue areas that may have resulted from either the tooth being missing or the trauma or whatever. So that's the huge advantage, I think, that auto transplantation can offer. Now, what are the disadvantages? Well, you have a limited time window if you want to ideally transplant a tooth, and that's typically when the root is about one half to two thirds complete. So you're talking a couple year window. Mm -hmm. Late, lately, some of the people in Europe have been looking at and are doing autotransplantation of mature teeth, but they require endodontics before the tooth is transplanted. And they're finding that their success rates are nearly equal to the young immature tooth. Um, the other disadvantage, you have to involve multiple specialties. You have to have orthodontists to move the tooth around. You have to have potentially an endodontist. You have to have a surgeon to do the tooth uh, transplantation. You have to have a restorative dentist to make the tooth look like the original tooth. So you have those disadvantages. And then of course, just like with implants, there are potential complications. You can have root resorption, pulp necrosis, um, ankylosis, all those sorts of things. So it's not without its issues, but for the most part, um, success rates are, are quite high in the high 90s. So that's, that's why I've started looking at that as a potential solution. No, oh, that's great, thank you. I think that's what's so exciting about autotransplantation is it fills the void of potential treatment options and then you also have all these new possibilities. So that's really neat. Um, what yeah. patients would you generally consider are good candidates for autotransplantation? Are there certain features that you look for or prefer in patients? That's a great question, Ryan. And please, um, your audience, understand that when I talk about when is it indicated, there are always multiple potential solutions to these types of cases. So I'm not saying that autotransplantation is the sole and best solution in each of these cases. Sometimes it is not, but I think the obvious First uh, indication is when you have a compromised anterior tooth, usually a maxillary anterior tooth. Those are the ones that are most commonly injured. Uh, and it's generally the central incisor. So either it's ankylosed or it's missing. Along with that is 
a lateral incisor, which is the second most common missing tooth, as we know. Um, you can have situations where there's ectopic eruption of canines. You can move those back into place. I think in Europe that they use it a lot to move premolars from upper arch to lower arch generally when the lower second premolar is missing and the malocclusion is such that it works out that they were gonna take out teeth anyway and now they don't want to depend on a second primary molar for the rest of their life or to try and close the space. I think you're finding out that orthodontically all those things can be quite difficult to close space, maintain midlines, et cetera, et cetera. But those are generally the things. And then you have the very unusual cases. You have the extremely large macrodonts or fused teeth or something like that that are just too difficult, can't restore or you can't modify the tooth to a point where you can do anything with it and you have to take it out. No, Great. that makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, that's a huge advantage for a lot of different, a lot of different patient situations. Um, I know you had mentioned that um, there's kind of an ideal window for doing the autotransplantation, but that age range has expanded to a little bit older. Um, could you just talk about how age matters and um, how age influences the sequence of treatment um, as to whether or not you need endodontics? Yeah, I can talk about that, Laura. The interesting thing, um, a, a lot of what I'm going to say is is not been published yet, but it is um, with COVID, I've talked with the potential author. He's working with Dr. Andreasen, the the godfather of, of trauma and, and trauma management, and they are working on a paper that's going to be published. So people are gonna hear some things that are coming out. Uh, I can't verify them completely, but um, it's, it's interesting. So the age range, half to two thirds for an immature tooth. So you're talking generally eight to 10 year old patients. Um, in cases that where a tooth has been knocked out, we know that um, kids, generally have that trauma incident fairly early in that age range. So if you're a general dentist or a pediatric dentist, this is a perfect time to start looking at where's the development of my lower premolars or, or my upper premolars too, um, to potentially transplant into the missing tooth. That's traditionally been where people live, but what they are finding out is um, and this group in, in Rotterdam um, has done over 1,500 cases, and they have been doing mature teeth, and they first have to do endodontics because the pulp will not regenerate in a closed apex tooth. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have to do the endodontics first. They are looking at their success rate rates there, and for people under age 18, their success rates are equal to the immature teeth or the best success rates in autotransplantation. For some reason, and I don't know if anybody has figured it out, if you're over the age of 18, 
uh, even with endodontics, the success rate for autotransplantation drops. So um, they're not they're not as it, it's a bit more of a risk to do a procedure in that age group. That's that's great to know that we yeah. you know really need to keep keep an eye on the time and yeah. and refer patients at the right stage in development. That is the entire key, actually. Just yeah. recognizing early. So you've mentioned some already, but are there certain teeth that are generally regarded as the best donor teeth? And are there certain sites in the mouth that are best to serve as recipient sites? Ryan, that's a good question. The, I guess the way I look at this is um, that you sit down. It's, it's not so easy to say it's just this tooth or this tooth. But um, autotransplantation requires or should have a team approach. You should have a surgeon on the team. You should have an endodontist. You should have a restorative dentist, et cetera, et cetera. And what you do then is sit around the table and say, I would like to replace this upper central incisor. And the surgeon says, well, the lower second premolar, I have very good access to. I can predictably move that tooth without uh, worrying about surgical complications. The orthodontist may say, well, that may be the case, but uh, based on the patient's malocclusion, to close the lower second premolar space would be almost impossible. So I would prefer an upper second premolar. Then the endodontist comes in and says, well, that both those teeth are fine, but they have very torturous canals and I'm not sure I can predictably finish that tooth. So I'd rather you do whatever tooth. Then the restorative dentist kicks in and says, you know, in replacing the central incisor, the lower second premolar again, back to the surgeon, that's gonna give me the best emergence profile and the easiest way to match the other tooth. So it becomes a game of sitting around the table, going through decisions and finally coming up with, this is the best tooth to choose. So generally, and this is very general, central incisors, probably lower second premolars are the best choice across the board for everybody. Um, lower first premolars can be used there, but sometimes the emergence profile is more difficult. They're actually pretty good at replacing lateral incisors. Upper second premolars, depending on their size, and we know that they vary in size, uh, can and cannot be used. Probably the only tooth you would not consider for autotransplantation is the upper first first premolar, and that's based more on the fact that it generally has two roots that flare buckle and lingual, so placing that into an anterior spot can be a little bit tricky, so they stay away from that. Hmm, that's really interesting. It sounds like it's so imperative to have that team approach and open communication with everyone so you can decide what, what's ultimately best for the patient. The team approach is obviously the best. And I think it's interesting. We've 
been coming to that with some of these, the, the study clubs, the Seattle Is study club. Is it the club Seattle club. study club? Yeah, those types yeah. of things where people are, all, all types of uh, groups are represented. And I think that's, auto transplantation is one of the things uh, that at the dental school they're trying to involve all specialties in one thing. This is probably the best example of working across specialties. You need everybody. Now for the private practitioner out there who, who's listening and might not be in uh, an academic setting, how would you recommend coordinating this kind of procedure with, um, you know, with the oral surgeon, with the restorative dentist? <laughs> that is a great question, Ryan, because that is the situation. That is the struggle. Right? Yeah, the, it, it, uh, first, the, the person has to recognize that this potentially could be um, an autotransplantation case. Generally, our universities have not been teaching this to undergrad students. So what you don't know, you don't even imagine. So that's actually what I'm trying to do is be sort of the Johnny Appleseed and start dropping little seeds here and there. To, <laughs> and you've been doing a great, a great well, job of that. Thank you. To, um, to get people to start thinking about that. Right now, uh, what I've found in my practice is I have patients coming from across the state because they hear about it and nobody else is doing it. I think you have to talk to somebody at, at for example, UNC and go to their trauma team that they've established a trauma team that has all the specialties, let them go through the case and then send it back to you. And, um, if you're comfortable, do that in your private practice setting. If you're not, the patient is going to have to travel. What I envision is in 20 years, we'll have in major cities, probably a auto transplant team within each city, people that have learned and trained and have become proficient at it. And that's what we're gonna be doing. Yeah, I mean, I, it seems like it would require you know, almost like a cleft team, but I mean, not quite to that level of complexity, just to be able to coordinate all the steps and, and the different care levels. Because I know, you know, with, with the patient that I had been communicating with you about, I think, you know, mom was just concerned with like the number of people she'd have to see and kind of the entire process of coordinating it um, versus like going to the oral surgeon seemed like a one-stop shop. And so having kind of a point of care, I think would be a huge advantage for private practitioners to be able to refer patients through this process um, and just kind of understand exactly what's going to happen down the road. Um, and I mean, we're, we're really lucky because we're right next to UNC so we can work with um, people within the institution, but a lot of people don't have an academic powerhouse kind of nearby to tap into. Um, with, you know, in a private practice setting, how would you kind of, you know, I know from, from your prior lectures that there's a 3D printed tooth template, um, you know, that requires a CBCT and, you know, all these things you can do kind of within, you know, with, within a very high tech practice or within an academic institution. But um, how do you recommend the private practitioner to coordinate something like that? Or is that primarily managed by an oral surgeon who has experience with doing these procedures? I think if I was out in private practice, uh, 
similar, the orthodontist role would be similar to the role that they play in whatever case, and that is you take good clinical records. Mm -hmm. That does help the patient in terms of those records, especially today being digital, can be transferred to different specialists and people can talk without the patient being there. Um, the CBCT is becoming much more, more much more popular and, and much easier to access. Uh, and again, you can share that across distances quite easily through our internet. So I see that it's, it's coming that way. Uh, I think more importantly is just the education of the practitioner. That's where you, you're going to pick up that, that this potentially could be a solution for a, a, a patient. Yeah. And if you, I mean, I, I've run into this, which is why I reached out to UNC, but, you know, when I had been talking to my oral surgeon or one of the oral surgeons our, our practice frequently works with, his response was, well, you know, I've never done that. I've, you know, I really haven't heard of it. You know, I can't really help you there. Is there um, anything that you recommend to do if all of the oral surgeons in your network are giving you that I, response? Yeah, I've. I've run into the same problem, Laura, with the oral surgeons that I work with. Many are the same that you work with. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's just that it's a new concept. And so it takes an open mind and a, and a new look at the possibilities. And the only thing I think that we're going to, the only way it's gonna change is to continue to document these cases and share them with one another and show that the outcomes are superior to the other options that we've previously tried. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and as you see the, the outcomes, and that's what, when I went over to Rotterdam, that blew me away were the opportunities that I saw and thought, well, there's no way they can fix that. And what they did was so mind-blowing that once you see it, you want to start participating in that kind of solution. It's, yeah. it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, I mean, you've described this kind of throughout, but just to lay out exactly what are kind of the steps, you know, from the orthodontist perspective, clinically and referral-wise to making this happen, and, and what are the kind of additional costs that are built into those steps? I think the orthodontist first has to recognize that this is a potential case. Mm -hmm. um, once they do that, then I think the orthodontist presents to the parent, here are the different options that we have available to fix and do something similar to what we started this discussion with. What are the advantages and disadvantages of, of both? Mm -hmm. um, so once the decision has been made that we're going to auto transplant, generally you've selected the tooth, you've selected the auto transplantation spot. And that's, that's in partnership with the restorative dentist and the yeah. oral surgeon. And that's been done, all, all the people mm -hmm. have met. So then mm -hmm. the orthodontist essentially places braces and begins preparing the implant or the 
uh, transplant site, opening up space, making sure there's adequate space for the uh, donor tooth to go into. That's often easy if there's an ankylosed tooth or a compromised tooth that's already there. You basically have the space, but if, if there's not, you've got to open and prepare the space. Mm-hmm. Then depending on what the situation is, if it's an immature tooth, once you have the space open and the tooth is ready to go, then you set up the surgery. And um, as an orthodontist, they have found that you need to quote, prime the tooth, meaning you want to place an orthodontic force on the donor tooth. It recruits more PDL cells. It also makes the tooth somewhat mobile, making it easier to surgically remove with less damage. So six weeks prior to the surgery, you prime this tooth, and then starting surgery, day of surgery, they transplant. And this is, we talked about this a little bit earlier, what kind of patients, um, the patient has to understand there's a certain protocol that they really need to follow. So the patient is seen at one week to remove sutures uh, and check healing, make sure there's no infection. They're checked again at three weeks. Again, same sort of thing, healing, Is there any infection? A radiograph will be obtained to make sure the bone is starting to fill in. And then at six weeks, the tooth can start being moved and restored. So that's one other issue in North America that we all want everything and we want it right now. The patient (laughs) has to understand there's gonna be six weeks of having a lower second premolar sitting in a central incisor position. It looks mm-hmm. kind of funny. Yeah. It looks kind of funny. But, but, and then you start moving the tooth and essentially as the healing progresses and the case progresses, it becomes more of a orthodontic case than a, a restorative or whatever type case you want to say. Because, because the tooth looks great, the donor tooth looks great, it's healed. Now you're just moving the tooth and closing up space. And it's, as I said, it becomes an orthodontic case. Yeah. No, that sounds great. Very neat. Um, You've done a really nice job describing the factors for success of an autotransplantation case. If you could just list like the two or three, what would you say are the most important things that you look for as factors for predictable success? To me, where I am in my education and what I'm trying to do is recognition that this is a potential case. Mm -hmm. Um, Then the factors for me as an orthodontist and a pediatric dentist, my keys are number one, what's easiest or best orthodontically to decide which tooth to pick. We talked about the fact if a patient has a a class two malocclusion and the orthodontist is considering what Dr. Prophet used to call a camouflage case, taking out two upper premolars. Well, if I have two upper premolars and I have a compromise that are completely healthy 
and I have a compromised anterior tooth, why don't I use one of those two premolars and replace that tooth? Mm. Um, and interesting, sidelight, don't take out both premolars at the same time, take out the one transplant it, keep the other in reserve. They have found with, uh, if for whatever reason, the first implant fails or the first transplant fails, you have a second chance. You can use the second premolar. So as an orthodontist, I'm looking, what is the easiest way to treat the malocclusion? And am I going to be removing teeth? And if I'm going to be removing teeth, should I consider that? As a restorative dentist or the pediatric dentist, I'm looking at which tooth matches the best, which one is going to fit into whatever situation that I'm trying to solve. And um, so that's how I decide that. Now, if I was an endodontist and you were interviewing me, I'd probably be talking about, you know, what canal anatomy do I have? How many roots do I have? Et cetera, et cetera. And surgeons would be talking about how, what kind of access do I have? Uh, do I have to go digging in to go after this tooth? All those sorts of things. So, yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, with with all of that, I mean, we're having a CBCT done to 3D print the tooth. The oral surgeon's going to be doing the auto transplantation and some follow up visits, and then if and there's a restorative dentist who'll be doing the the build up, um, and then if it's an older an older adolescent, they'd be getting an endodontic um, root canal. How much additional cost does this add to kind of the the treatment process? I think the costs, Laura, are probably, um, it, it's interesting. So I think your orthodontic costs are going to be approximately the same. Mm -hmm. There is a restorative cost of building up a tooth. So um, you know, you're looking at a few hundred dollars for a composite resin type, just like mm -hmm. a fractured anterior tooth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't see that much difference. Endodontics, if necessary, is part of that. And then the surgery itself. I don't know the cost of surgery at this point. We're all learning, so we're kind of giving the patient some break and, and charging basically a tooth extraction. But um, when you compare and contrast that to prosthetic replacement of tooth, I know some pediatric dentist in Wake County here next door to me went and surveyed all the people uh, so that they could tell their patients that have a missing tooth, expect to pay this amount. And this was two years ago. And I think they came up with a figure around 30 to $35,000 to Ouch. replace a tooth with an implant by the time it's all said and done from orthodontics to uh, bone augmentation to mm -hmm. placement of the implant to restoration, all that sort of thing. I think autotransplantation actually is going to be a, a cheaper alternative. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think explaining that to uh, parents is, I mean, that and the huge advantages of having a natural tooth yeah. over an implant, I think yeah. are really the way to, to win, you know, parents over to a somewhat more complicated treatment plan at this point, but it means it's not, 
you know, put off into the 20s where the kid may not have the resources to do it or may not have the interest to kind of go through the implant process. How does this affect kind of the orthodontic treatment time? Um, does it kind of increase your, your, ET, your ETT, your estimated treatment time, or is it about the same? I'm finding it's about the same if, if you're clever enough to figure out, well, if I take this tooth out, it's gonna help me do this. Um, mm -hmm. Probably the hardest ones that I've run into, and, and I'm a absolute beginning rookie, uh, the lower second premolars, if you take out, as you two know as orthodontists, closing up space, um, and the lower arch is just a little bit trickier than yeah. it is in the upper arch. Mm -hmm. I can even share one case if your audience wants to look at that sort of thing and you can kind of go through all this, the preparation and, and how things look so that they can get an idea of what, what's what, if you want to do that. Absolutely, that would be great. Yeah, that sounds great. So here's a young man that, um, five, six years ago had, was playing baseball, a Volsta front tooth, number nine, obviously, and uh, it has ankylosed, and the parents want to know what they can do to replace that. So we went through all the different discussions and decided to do auto transplantation. Because of his age, he was now 14, 15, we needed to do endodontics. So starting about six weeks prior to the surgery, we had endodontics done. The surgeon came over, this was the fellow from Rotterdam that I met, with a 3D replica of the tooth. This is day of surgery. And what the surgeons do is take the tooth out first, and check that it's, that they got it out okay, it's intact. Here he's comparing it to the replica to make sure that it's, uh, there's no surprise there. Then you remove the ankylosed tooth and then use an implant bird to prepare the site. So site preparation in this case was relatively straightforward because there was an existing tooth but if there was a missing tooth, you've opened up the space, we talked about that, and now you begin site preparation with an implant, uh, handpiece and burr. Here's where the 3D replica is used. You don't have to take the actual tooth and stick it in and pull it back out several times, which can, the whole key to success is to minimize damage to the PDL of the of the uh, donor tooth. So you use the replica to try it in and out until you're happy. There you can see that the donor tooth was removed but put back into the socket just to rest or sit until they're ready and then they transplant the tooth. And how exact are they with the sizing of the recipient site? Because of PDL, uh, one of the beauties is it fills in, it, it generates bone. Um, you over-prepare the, the donor site a bit so that there's no crushing or 
pressure on the PDL, the tooth just slides into place. This is the trans transplant the, site, you mean? Yes, and yes. then then they suture into place. So they they make a fairly big uh, recipient site, but not too large that you can't hold the tooth in place. And generally, it's just a suture back into place. That's what it looks like. Um, and people talk about, well, what, what about if you look at this picture and they said, well, the facial plate is gone. He said, that's fine because the PDL will regenerate a new facial plate for you as the tooth heals and as you move the tooth. Yeah, um, just for listeners who um, are, aren't able to look at their screen right now, um, the you know the premolar is, is placed into the number nine site, and you can kind of see the bulge over the root where the buckle plate would have been. Yes, yeah. yes, and then a week later, you come in for suture removal. The patient has been rinsing with chlorhexidine. They are not supposed to brush their teeth in this during this time period to allow the tooth to heal uh, and it looks something like this i'm going to quickly go through these photos there's the suture removed now the patient at one week can start brushing their teeth gently and it's healed beautifully i mean there's and no inflammation and you can see in the the periapical x-ray you can see the the surgical prepared site there's less bone there, but you'll note for those that have video that in a couple of weeks when we take a new PA, how much bone is regenerated in that three-week time period. So here's what the patient looks like at three weeks. I put a little yellow outline on the tooth just to give you an idea of what it would look like when we restore the tooth. You begin probing to make sure that the Epithelium is reattaching and that you have nice pocket depths and it should not be anything just like every other tooth. It should not be deeper than three millimeters. And, and it seems like just like with the anterior buildup, the premolar is placed kind of high so that you have space to kind of build, build onto it in kind of all dimensions. That is, is that and, usually and, the approach? That and you want to keep the tooth out of occlusion while it's healing. So it is okay. generally placed uh, more gingival or, or away from the plane of occlusion mm -hmm. when it's transplanted. Um, at six weeks, the Rotterdam protocol, they begin tooth movement and they restore the tooth. So here's the, the day of restoration. I build it up with just some common composite restoration or composite material. Here is sort of the outline of that premolar tooth so you can see how that's built up. And what you're trying to do is replicate the emergence profile and length of the tooth, those sorts of things. And the odd thing is for those that have not seen transplants, you will always see that lingual cusp. The people in Europe talk about leaving the lingual cusp alone. Don't grind it down. Here in America, we and all dentists, you pick up a handpiece, you want to grind down extra cusp pips. But if the tooth especially has not had any endodontic treatment, that puts it at risk for pulpal necrosis. So you do not want, and the, the surgeon teaches his 
patience to yell and scream and run out of the office if if somebody picks <laughs> up a handbeat. So uh, don't let them grind that. And then you can see at six weeks, the bone is nearly completely wow. healed up. Wow. Um, you can see the margins there. And that's the trickiest part is trying to get good margins that are healthy and um, look, you know, have an emergence profile. So this is what he looks like at six weeks. His father sent me a cell phone picture, which I was ecstatic to see because the tooth had moved. Yeah, it's moving. And you're always worried about ankylosis. That's the number one complication. Um, and now I'm just gonna, um, I mean, basically I'm gonna go through and within six months or so, well, here he is at one year. My wow. case is, That's as beautiful. I said, almost turned into a orthodontic case. Um, I'm just closing space up. Well, I've actually got it closed now, Laura. So um, my premolar space is closed and my, I'm working on my buccal segments right now, and I should have a pretty decent outcome. So that's sort of what it looks like and gives a, an idea of, of the protocol of what, what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's a beautiful case. Thanks for showing that. Yeah. Thank you, yeah, thank you. And it, it, it looks great and the, the thing that I love when I look at all these cases and looked at all the cases over in Europe, the bone and soft tissue just looks so good and you can't mm -hmm. replicate that with uh, implants or it doesn't stay that way long-term. So that's the one issue that I really like. And I like the fact that the patient, Sam, this last patient is gonna be done and will not have to worry about maintaining that space um, he will go into high school. He will not have to deal with, do I take my prosthetic tooth out at lunch? Do I do this? Do I do that? We're, we're basically finished. The one other thing I will say, um, interesting that I found just as sort of a side note, um, we're all orthodontists and we, often complain that our patients aren't helping us and they're not uh, all that motivated and they won't wear rubber bands or they don't brush their teeth. What I have found with cases so far in auto transplantation is these kids, this is like a miracle for them. They are so excited. And so they'll do almost anything for you because they, you've, they've now put their trust that you know what you're doing and all of a sudden, now they look great where they were worried about, they just, they look so funny in that teenage year, they, they're really happy with that. They're, they're happy with the outcome. So they're always happy to see you. They're always yeah. happy to come in. So that's kind of a nice benefit. I mean, yeah, it's a great relationship yeah. builder yeah. and a great practice builder yeah. as well. How many would you say you've done at this point? I have about 10 total teeth in my office going and over at this dental school we have maybe three more under my supervision what the residents are treating so um you know as i said i'm a i'm a brand new i'm a neophyte but i've um i've been blessed 
with this friendship with the periodontist in Rotterdam, he has been more than willing to help. We send cases back and forth. Um, a, a great person and they, um, I think he wants to see UNC succeed and, and spread this word around. It's, it's just a nice, it's a nice solution. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great option. Um, and you had mentioned the group in, in Rotterdam. It, where would you recommend people go to learn more about this if they're interested in starting this either at their you know, academic institution or start doing this in their private offices? I think that um, starting off just going to the literature and reading, there's been more and more uh, articles put out. Most of the articles in in uh, the U.S. or the AJO, that sort of thing, are just case reports. I'd stay away from those, but if you go to the European Journal of Orthodontics and different um, places that they have long-term success rates looking at cases 20, 25 years down the road. So starting there is a good way to go. Um, and then if you get interested, I'd suggest going over to their symposium. The third one was supposed to be this uh, May. I was supposed to go over to um, actually to Poland, but um, that got canceled because of COVID. Uh, so next year, I hope that they'll have another one and I plan to attend to continue to try and increase my skills. And, and I know in our, separate conversations you know there there are a couple groups doing this in europe and a couple different protocols is there a reason you kind of prefer the rotterdam approach part of it is because of the friendship i established but the other part was his group has done 1500 of these cases mm -hmm. so and he's got a very uh interesting database that they constructed early on so they can pull out what teeth did we replace a upper left lateral incisor with? What are the success rates? What this, that, um, and we're actually trying to get that same database, pay them to let us use that at UNC. Um, so as we develop that, I think it's, a, it's great for research opportunities and things. So their willingness to share things with us is one reason I follow it. Their, uh, the science behind their decision-making is another reason that I think is it's a good um, way to go and their success rates are hard to, to argue. Yeah, yeah. And are there a couple papers from that group that you'd recommend people looking at? At this point, I'd wait. I hope he'll, Dick it, will have this paper out. Berendrecht and Andreasen should be out I hope within six months, look for those two names. Um, as I said, he um, shared some preliminary data with me and, and they looked at all 1500 cases and it's almost stunning to me that uh, they've had nine failures out of 1500. Their success rate is 99. I figured it out, it's 99.4% or something. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But there are, there are teams in Korea, there are teams in Scandinavia, there's the Polish team that mm -hmm. 
I think there, and the interesting thing going to these meetings, everybody's, nobody's competing. They're all trying to share their ideas with one another just to get better at this. And yeah. uh, I hope that UNC can join them sometime in the future. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. Great. Well, I, I know I speak for our audience when I say that was so uh, incredibly informative and interesting. I'm really excited for our audience to to listen to this and to thank you so much, Dr. Christensen, for yeah, uh, taking the time to be with us today and share your expertise in this in this uh, field. Well, thank you. thank you two guys because that um, just getting this out is huge, and I think the more we educate people to the possibility, the more the more the patients are going to benefit from that. So and. Certainly share with your audience, I don't know how you do it, Ryan, whatever um, my email or whatever way they want to contact me or contact you, and then you can get them to me, however we want to do that. But absolutely, if you have questions, we certainly will. Um, that's one of the nice things about this group that I've been with. Everybody has been so open and, and helpful that we, we sort of want to be the same way. Dr. Christensen, I, what's the best um, email that you'd want people to reach you at? The jc at durhampdo.com. Okay. okay, very good. And, and could you spell that out? Uh, it's J as in John and C as in Christensen at Durham, D-U-R-H-A-M. P as in Peter, D as in David, O as in Oscar, pdo.com. Okay, great. Very good. Well, that was that was really great. I learned so much and Dr. Christensen just such a he's such a good educator. Yeah. I mean he's so so well spoken and the the, the deep baritone I think really delivers home <laughs> the message well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So what what did, was um did you know he's a Harvard grad for undergrad? I, I think I did, yes. Yeah. Yes. I was gonna say he's not from North Carolina originally. Do you know where he's from? Um, I do not. We should have asked him. <laughs> yeah, we should have asked. Oh well. Oh well. It'll be one of our follow up questions. So what was yeah. um one if you could take away one pearl from his talk, what what do you think that would be? I think the age ranges that that this could be helpful for was something that, you know, I mean, I had obviously heard about the procedure before just from hearing, seeing his lectures, but um, now I hear that, hearing now that you can do it in kind of older teenagers, even with a closed apex with a root canal, I think really broadens the scope of patients that I, you know, I'll be looking at to use this. I mean, granted, it's still a rare patient that has, you know, an ankylosed anterior tooth or really compromised tooth, but you know, we have, we have a couple of them in our practice and um, knowing that we can offer this is something that I'll be, you know, excited to do going forward um, with, with a number of, of patients. How about you? Yeah. What, what did you, what was, what was your favorite pearl? I think my favorite thing was when he mentioned the camouflage cases and how, you know, if we're taking premolars out anyway, as part of our treatment plan, we can use those as potential auto transplantation donors. And I thought it was really interesting when he said you can, instead of just taking all those premolars out, you take one out at a time and use that as your first attempt for auto transplantation. If that, uh, for whatever reason, fails to take, then you can use 
the other premolar and get a second shot at it. And just that the success rate is so high already, but that you have that option to get a second chance at it is just, I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really nifty and it encapsulates well, like good orthodontic treatment planning where you're not just looking at the one problem in front of you, but looking collectively at the case and kind of figuring out all of the things you can do to get to the best outcome. Yeah, definitely. And we'll also, for those of you listening, we'll leave a link in the description if you want to check out any of uh, Dr. Christensen's other publications. And since this is our uh, very first episode, we don't have any audience questions yet, but if you have any follow-up questions after this episode, feel free to leave them in a comment below this video, send me an email, or you can reach out to me via uh, my social media platforms, and we will address those questions at the end of the next episode. But that's it for this one, guys. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you all in the next episode.